amped up to get into the Word. Hey, my name is Garrett. Uh, good morning, church family. Uh, just real quick to clear things up for those of you that are wondering, was he just out here leading worship? No, that wasn't me. That was uh, my younger brother, Elliot. And uh, people often get us confused. You know what's funny is literally this morning, I kid you not, I was picking out my t-shirt and knowing that he was going to be up here leading worship, I thought to myself, I'm pretty sure he's not going to wear a green t-shirt. And sure enough, <laughs> to my embarrassment. So you can turn in Mark 9, we'll be looking at uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. So go there and, and uh, go ahead and place a finger there. Um, we're going to have all the secondary text on the, on the screens, all the cross-references, but we think it's helpful if the primary text, the main text of the study can be in front of you and you can follow along. But before we get into our main text today, we're going to continue in our responsive reading through Psalms 119, all about God's Word. So as we read it this morning, may we be reminded of why we love God's Word and why we need God's Word. So if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read Psalms 119, verses 30 through 40. I'll read the odd if you'll read the even. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Amen. Now, if you'll follow along with me in uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50 is what we'll cover. I'll read starting in verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? And they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe that it is living and active and that it's good for our instruction and for our correction. And so we give you thanks for the opportunity we have this morning to come together as a family of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, to learn more about you. Lord, we want to worship you this morning, even as we read your word together. God, we pray for churches around the world that are meeting today, especially, Lord, churches uh, in and around uh, the fires in Maui. God, we lift up those believers who are ministering in a whole new way this week. God, we pray that you give them peace and strength. We pray for the many people who have lost loved ones, lost their homes. In the face of so much loss, Lord, I pray that you would uh, strengthen your people and bring peace, God, that passes understanding. 
be with them this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So when you travel with someone, you get to know them on a whole nother level, don't you? Pastor Bobby was my traveling companion on the Belize missions trip. He was my roommate. And I learned some things about Pastor Bobby, and I wish he was in here so I could make fun of him. Um, But I learned that uh, he likes, just before going to bed, he likes to play a little bit of Super Mario Brothers, you know, on his Nintendo Switch. Isn't that cute? And And then I also learned that he's not very good at it. But walking with Bobby through Belize and and through the years now, um, I see that this guy just serves his brains out for other people. And it really is inspiring. And so when you travel with someone, when you walk with someone, you grow together in relationships. So in our text today, we see the disciples walking with Jesus. He's traveling with them. They're learning from him. They're learning about themselves as he teaches them. And, and that whole idea of walking with Jesus, we use that terminology a lot, don't we? Our walk with Christ, our walk with Jesus. And it's a great picture because that's, that's what the Christian faith is. It's not a static faith. It's, it's a journey with Jesus as he is with us, as we follow him. He changes us. So I love to see in the Gospels when, when the disciples are, are walking with Jesus and He's dealing with them, and he's teaching them, and that's exactly what's going on here. It's often very encouraging as we see their fear, we see their weakness, we see their inability to grasp spiritual truths, and Jesus just gently encourages them and teaches them in spite of it. So they're walking with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. They've witnessed many miracles. They've, they've heard him teach. They're completely convinced that he is the Messiah but they seem completely confused as to what he's telling them there in verse 31. He says, the son of man has been betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. This is actually the second time in the book of Mark that Jesus has predicted his betrayal, his death and his resurrection. And if you remember the last time, the first time he, he revealed that to them, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus. And he says, no way, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter couldn't fathom the idea of Jesus dying. All he wanted to focus on, all he wanted to envision was an earthly rule and an earthly kingdom with Peter reigning and ruling with with Jesus. He didn't want to think about Jesus dying. So Jesus repukes Peter, right? And he says, get behind me, Satan. A strong rebuke. He instructs him to set his mind on the things of God rather than the things of men. So it's no wonder that here in the the second time that Jesus is telling them about his death and resurrection, they remain silent. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. You can almost see maybe one of the disciples uh, wanting to press back or question Jesus. And Peter's like, don't do it, bro. (laughs) Not a good idea. And so they say nothing. Then just to prove that they didn't get it, as they're walking with Jesus after this, they're not discussing, hey, what do you think he meant? They're not They're not building up the courage to ask him uh, what he was talking about. Instead, they're arguing about which one of them will be the greatest in his kingdom. And I thought about it. How often do I, how often do we read our Bibles and not understand something? Or we we sit through a a sermon or listen to a teaching online and we don't get a part of it. And, And rather than digging in and asking good questions, rather than seeking to get to the bottom of it, we just allow our mind and our heart to go back to how important we are and what we feel like is important instead of what's truly important. It's so very easy, even while walking with Jesus, to allow our pride 
to rob us of the lessons that he's trying to teach us. It's easy to miss what Jesus is saying when we're putting ourselves first. Without humility, we'll grow dull of heart, we'll become those who listen but do not hear. Instead, just as we read in the Psalms, may God incline our hearts to his testimonies and not to covetousness. Amen? And praise God, he's patient with us. He's patient with us when we don't understand, just as he was with the disciples here. So they get to this house, and he gathers them together, and he begins to expose their pride to them by asking, hey, what were you fellows talking about when we were walking on the road there? In verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. So they kept silent because they had been walking with Jesus long enough to know better. They knew, and they were embarrassed by what they were doing. So Jesus sits down, as rabbis do, when it's time to teach, and the disciples know it's time to listen, and he proceeds to instruct them and in one of the most radical kingdom of God messages, lessons that there is. He says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all, and he shall be servant of all. Notice that Jesus doesn't condemn them for their quest to greatness. He doesn't say, what were you guys thinking? Why, why are you so focused on yourselves? How could you? Instead, he, he says, you want to be great? Here's what it takes to be great. Here's God's guide to greatness. He could have easily let him have it, right? But instead, he instructs them and he encourages him. And Jesus does that with us too. He's patient when we don't get it. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last. This is one of those spiritual truths that we kind of get it, but we really don't get it. We understand that pride is ugly, so we try to mask it. We understand that humility is good, so we try to project humility. But to truly put ourselves last, to regularly and consistently to choose last place, that's something else. That's a radical departure from the norm. And I don't think Jesus is talking about occasionally just letting someone in front of you at the grocery store or you know, in traffic, letting someone cut in front of you. Though for some of us, that might be the starting place. We've got to start where we're at. But uh, Jesus is talking here about true greatness, true greatness that is found in the washing your brother's feet type of lastness. And we really struggle with that. And not just because feet are gross. <laughs> we struggle with anything that is a true, costly, real sacrifice. We like the idea of putting others ahead of ourselves, but when it comes down to it, that's really hard. Especially when we're called to do it for those that we don't know. It's so hard, in fact, that we really don't have a good chance of, we have no chance of, of living this way outside of Christ. In our flesh, there's no way. Christ alone perfectly demonstrates how the first shall be last. Jesus is preeminent, which simply means Jesus is first. He's first in everything. The preeminence of uh, Christ is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 15 through 18. Let's read that. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that were in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. This is who Jesus is. 
Jesus is of first importance. He's of first honor. Yet he humbled himself. He came down in the appearance of men, and he was obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. So Jesus is the first who became last. In a couple of weeks, we'll study the, the third time that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in Mark 10. And there he gives more details to the disciples about why he'll die and rise again, what his purpose is. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, the Son of God, became last, became a servant of all to give his life as a ransom for me and a ransom for you. That's the true standard of greatness, amen? That's why we worship Jesus. So to walk with Jesus is to follow Jesus, to become more like him. He's calling us to choose last place, just as he did, to put others ahead of ourselves. He's calling us to choose to go to the back of the line. And he tells us how to do it. He says, be a servant of all. We try to measure greatness in a lot of different ways. But we don't measure greatness by how much influence we have, how many followers, how many likes, how many employees, how many accomplishments, how many degrees, how many awards, how much we get noticed, how much money we make, how much people like us. None of, you th none of these things make a person great, despite what the world says. John Piper put it this way. He said, the measure of true greatness is to what degree has the impulse to self-exaltation been crucified? How much, heartfelt, how much heartfelt desire to serve others has there been? How much readiness and willingness to decrease while others increase? Those are searching questions. Then Paul put it this way to the Philippians. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. You know, a pastor should be the first to live out this truth and to be this example. The word minister simply means to serve, to be a servant. A pastor that doesn't serve his flock is really no pastor at all. I've heard a uh, Pastor Chuck Smith used to, uh, when, when people accepted the Lord during a service, they'd have a room off, off the wall, and he'd go in there and talk to them. And among many other things, one of the things that he would say is, congratulations, uh, among the fringe benefits of, of being a Christian, you just picked up a bunch of servants, because the pastors here at Calvary Chapel are here to serve you, to meet your needs, and we're available to do that. So that was the example set, and, and, and for me, growing up in Calvary chapels and meeting a lot of different pastors, I've, I've seen this to be true in more cases than not. The pastor is a servant leader, and the greatness of a pastor is not in the size of his ministry or in his book deals or in how popular he is or anything like that. The greatness of a pastor is in his desire and his capacity to serve and to sacrifice for his flock. So I believe largely due to Pastor Kevin's servant leadership, we have a church family that loves to serve, amen? And I love that about our church. Just this summer alone, I think about 170 people at VBS sacrificing their, their sleep. Some took a week of vacation to serve. Some sacrificed their sanity to serve. And <laughs> it was amazing to see that. 
And then last week, about 12 brave souls went to go live at summer camp among middle schoolers and high schoolers for five days straight, just to, to love and to serve them. Then, of course, there's the missions trips, there's outreach uh, projects, and then uh, between Sundays and Wednesdays throughout the building, there's, there's hundreds of volunteer positions that get filled each and every week. We love to serve at CCS. Just a little bit ago, there was a group of young dads that had the opportunity to go and bless one of the, the widows in our church. She had some things needing to be done at her place, and they were able to meet that need. And afterwards, one of the dads texted me, and he said, he said, that was so awesome. Who else needs help? When can we do that again? And that was so sweet, just because there's joy in serving. There's great joy in serving. It's fulfilling. Psalm says, serve the Lord with gladness. But again, it doesn't come easy. To put others first consistently and with the right motivation, that's a difficult thing that God knows we struggle with. So Jesus illustrates his point in verse 36. He says, or it says, then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms and said, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So this is the part in the sermon where I make the rest of the sermon all about how you need to serve in children's ministry. <laughs> and we're going to systematically sign everyone up at the end of the service. And for the first time in church history, we'll have zero needs in children's. We'll have a waiting list. Who's with me? Some nervous laughter there. I mean, it says it right there. Let me read it again from a different version. Whosoever doth not serve in children's ministry rejects not me, but he who sent me. Just kidding. That's, that's the uh, CEV, the, the children's director enhanced version. So it doesn't say that, and we're not going to do that. But what it does say is that we're to be a servant of all. And all means all, especially children. Kids back then in that culture didn't, have the priority that kids do today in our culture. Children had no rights. They were seen as, um, as non-citizens. They were the lowest member of society. They were also the weakest and most vulnerable. So perhaps Jesus is less concerned with whether or not you serve in the nursery and more concerned that you serve all people. Amen? Even the lowest members of our society. God may not be calling you to the nursery. You may be terrible with babies and we don't want you anywhere near the nursery. The point here is, are you serving? Are you willing to serve? Will you serve wherever and whomever God is calling you to? Sometimes we allow the sin of pride or the sin of sloth to rob us of being a servant. We think we're not up to it. We can't handle it. It's not a good fit. Or even worse, we think we're too qualified or, or we're too important for this ministry or that ministry. I have on occasion encountered those who count themselves too superior, too qualified to work with kids. Gasp. Went through the audience. It really is a sad thing when, when pride and the pursuit of, of our own standard of greatness get in the way of what God says is truly fulfilling and truly great. On the, on the, on the flip side, I met an elderly man at a children's ministry conference last February. Um, he must have been in his late 70s, and he'd been serving in children's ministry for something like 50 years or more. 
And for me, he was, the, he was teaching some of the workshops. And once I went to one of his workshops, I went to all of his workshops. And for me, he was the, the best part of the whole conference. Just to see his humility and his dedication to serve where God had him. And he served with such joy and such gladness. He told me that over the years, he's had pastors, um, you know, lead pastors, senior pastors, ask him, hey, why are you still teaching kids after all these years? I mean, this guy is gifted, right? He, he could easily have had other opportunities. So they asked him this almost as if he's been passed up for a promotion. And uh, he said he always teases them and responds, and he says, uh, well, I don't know, but God just must love me more than you. <laughs> he just found that joy in serving kids, and he saw it as, as the high calling that it is. God's heart for children is, is evident throughout the Gospels. And he says, when we love and serve children, when we love and serve those who are the most vulnerable members of society, he says it's as if we're receiving him and he who sent him. Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So may our greatest motivation to serve be our love for God. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may I ask you this morning, where are you serving? Where are you serving? All believers are called to serve. To not serve is to miss out on a vital part of the Christian life. It doesn't have to be in children's ministry. There are so many ways to serve, inside the walls of the church and outside the walls of the church. But it does need to happen. And it takes discipline. It's not going to happen just casually. When we come to faith in Jesus, part of, part of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, part of that whole thing is he puts in us a desire to serve. In other words, at salvation, Jesus begins to work in our hearts to give us a heart of service. But to serve in a way that is diligent and consistent and meaningful and fruitful, it takes discipline. It is a spiritual discipline. By the way, uh, the men's night a week from tomorrow, we call it the King's Men on Monday nights, um, Donald Whitney, who literally wrote the book on spiritual disciplines, will be joining us via Zoom, right? Oh, in September. Okay, yeah. So in September, Donald Whitney will be there. And you're not going to want to miss that. He, talk, he talks, he does a great job of, of how the spiritual discipline of serving is so vital. Oh, but he's not joining us. Okay, but he still wrote the book on it, okay? And you're not going to want to miss it. So moving along, we'll pick up the pace a little bit here. The disciples are embarrassed because Jesus has exposed their prideful hearts. He's telling them to be great is to be a servant of all. And then John responds. And he seems to be asking, does all really mean all? Verse 38. Now John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. So in other words, he's John is saying, Jesus, what about this guy who's doing exactly what you told us to do, but he's not a part of our club, so we told him to <laughs> cut it out. And Jesus responds, and he's kind of like, John, don't take yourself so seriously. Jesus says in verse 39, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. If you remember from last week, the disciples were attempting to cast out a demon, and they couldn't. So here's this guy doing a miraculous kingdom work, but not belonging to their group. So for the disciples, at least for John, there seems to be a spirit of competition, maybe jealousy, 
and, well, we know, a, a desire to be great. So they forbid him. It got me thinking, how is it so easy for us to become judgmental and competitive towards other believers? We compare our ministry to someone else and we try to look for ways that we're, we're better. I'll admit, in, in, in a day where pastors and churches post so much on social media, I really struggle with this temptation as I, as I see these things and I begin comparing and I begin to approach it with a competitive heart. And then when the, the Lord is gracious enough to convict me and I catch myself, I think, how stupid, how how clear of a signal is it that my heart is in the wrong place? This is, this, is, we're, this is not about ego. This is about building the kingdom of God. There's no path to greatness in a competitive and jealous spirit. So Jesus is saying, relax. So what if he's not a part of your ministry or a part of your group or a part of your church? He's doing great works in my name. So he's on our side. Sometimes we take way too many things way too seriously. And like John, we try to make it our business, we try to make it our job to limit how and when and where people worship or people serve or people live out their faith. Sometimes we think that our methods and our ideas are the only way to go. Sometimes we get critical with others for taking a different approach. And then the worst thing happens then we begin to sense that God has called us to the ultimate highest calling of being an internet troll for Jesus. And we just start correcting everyone in the most helpful and loving way possible. But Jesus doesn't call us to sectarianism. This idea that our faith, we're, we're to build this exclusive club and not associate with others. He instructs us against it. So what if the church down the street leans this way or that way. So what if the church down the street uh, doesn't see eye to eye with you about this idea or that method? Are they preaching the gospel? Are they serving people in Jesus' name? If they are, then they're on the same side. Whoever is not against us is for us. Look at verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Again, there are a lot of ways to serve. And some are more costly than others. For some, even some from our church family have been called to, to leave everything behind, to move to the Middle East, and to serve Muslims in the name of Jesus. And we celebrate that. That is incredible. Yet for others, at least for a season, the calling is to be here, to serve maybe just twice a month as an assistant in a classroom literally filling up Dixie cups of water so kids don't choke on their animal crackers. <laughs> and we celebrate that too. That's not insignificant. There's an eternal reward in that if it's done in the name of Jesus. For whoever gives a cup of water to drink in my name will by no means lose his reward. The small things are not insignificant to Jesus. What's important is that every believer is serving, big or small, Nothing done in the name of Jesus is done in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we ought to be encouraging to those who serve in the name of Jesus. 
We should never look down on. We should never criticize or rebuke someone because we think that their ministry is less important or because they're not a part of our group. To do so would be to violate the Christian love and the charity that we're called to as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it may very easily cause a weaker brother or sister in the Lord to stumble. And Jesus gives a strong warning for this offense. Look at 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown in the sea. And the disciples are like, okay, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is meek. Jesus is loving. Jesus is gracious. But that does not mean that Jesus will not give us a harsh warning. Millstones are these giant, heavy stones pulled by a donkey to crush grain. And to tie it around someone's neck and to throw them in the sea is a disturbing and violent way that the Romans in Jesus' day would sometimes use to execute people. So Jesus is using this, this, this image to stress his point when he says it would be better for him. In other words, the fate of that drowning man with a stone around his neck is preferable to what awaits at God's judgment for the one who causes a young believer to stumble. Again, children are vulnerable, they're moldable, they're impressionable. How evil is it for someone to take advantage of that and cause a little one to stumble and to doubt their faith? Whether we're talking about actual children or those who are young believers and spiritual children, there are few things more detestable and more disturbing than someone doing the work of the devil to rob, to kill, to destroy the faith of a young believer. We don't have to think for a long time to, to begin making a list of people in our society who would just be asking for a millstone. We live in a culture that uh, celebrates children in word, but seemingly just wants to destroy them, whether that be in the womb or later on by causing them to, to doubt that God made them male or female. We have educators, especially in universities, whose stated goal is to destroy the faith of their students. As I say this, I know some of you are, your heart begins to ache and your blood begins to boil and there's a righteous anger and you've got your phone out on Amazon looking to see if they sell millstones in bulk. <laughs> and I would suggest to you that perhaps it's better for us to trust God who is a just judge and who has promised judgment. And we, we focus our energy on being the strongest stabilizing force we possibly can be in the lives of other believers. We have to ask ourselves the question, is our life, when it comes to, to younger people in the faith, is our life one that is stabilizing or stumbling? Is our influence a stabilizing force or a stumbling block? When we live out our faith with conviction, we're stabilizing. When we live hypocritically, we're stumbling. When we worship in spirit and in truth, we're stabilizing. When we put other things above God, we're stumbling. When we pour our hearts and our minds and other things that are true and pure and lovely into the next generation and those who are younger, we're stabilizing them. But when we permit junk and garbage and darkness into our homes and onto our screens, we're stumbling. 
when we put others first and we serve diligently and consistently, we're stabilizing. But when we seek to be the greatest, we're stumbling. I pray that we as a church, by the grace of God, would be a church that stabilizes people in their faith. Amen? That we would welcome younger brothers and sisters in Christ, weak brothers and sisters in Christ, with open arms, and that our influence would strengthen them in their faith and not cause them to stumble. I think that it's safe to say that a, that a measure of true, true greatness that Jesus is talking about is those that are aware, that are looking for and aware of the younger and weaker brother and sister in the faith, and, and that we're sensitive to that. We're not flaunting our liberties, but we're sensitive to them as to not trip them up in their walk with God. It's just another way that we put others ahead of ourselves. So the warnings from Jesus continue. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, say you're sorry and try harder next time. Just kidding. doesn't say that. What it says is if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he goes on, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So we know that Jesus is, is speaking metaphorically. He's not literally instructing his disciples, disciples to uh, sever their limbs or pluck out their eyes. In fact, that was against Jewish law to do so. However, there have been those that have taken this literally. In fact, Pastor Kevin shared with me recently that there was once a, a, a man who came and visited the church here, and, and having sinned with his hand, he chopped off his hand. And I don't know the details. I don't know if he did it himself or had it done to him. But what I do know is that this man, having done this, realized that it wasn't his hand that caused him to sin. Hands don't cause us to sin. Feet don't cause us to sin. Our eyes don't cause us to sin. Sin is a matter of the heart. So this man, he had less flesh, but he was no closer to ridding himself of the sin than he was before he did that. He still had the same capacity to operate in the flesh as he did when he still had his arm. Our sin condition is a condition of the heart. And there is nothing, there's nothing we can do in our flesh to deal with our flesh. So if we're not literally cutting anything off, which is a bad idea, what are the instructions? What are we talking about? Jesus is talking here about fleeing temptation. He's talking about dealing radically with sin. Jesus mentions the hand, the foot, the eyes. The hand represents the things that we as believers has, have no business doing. The foot represents the places that we as believers have no business going. And the eyes represent things as believers that we have no business seeing. There are things in the life of a believer that simply need to be cut out. If there's something that I'm doing or if there's a place that I'm going or if there's images or videos that I'm seeing that are causing me to sin, what drastic measure do I need to take to cut those things out of my life? Jesus is concerned with our eternal destination. That's what he gave his life for. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell. These Warnings are life and death level important. So true story 
In 2003, a man named Aaron Ralston was hiking alone in the narrow canyons of eastern Utah. While hiking down from a boulder in the canyon, the boulder dislodged and smashed his right hand against the canyon wall. He was completely trapped. What's worse is he had not told anyone where he was going, and he had no way of contacting anyone for help. For five days, he survived off a small amount of water and two burritos while he desperately tried to devise a way to dislodge the rock and free his hand, but to no avail. After five days, now without food and water, he began to hallucinate, and he had a vision. And in this vision, he had become a father. And also in this vision, he had no right arm. So Aaron became aware that he had but one option if he was going to escape with his life. So I'll spare you the gory details, but I think you know where this is headed. With a, with a cheap pocket knife and the will to survive, Aaron proceeded to break both the bones in his forearm and sever his arm completely off. He then had to climb out of the canyon, rappel down a 65-foot cliff, and hike for six miles, where he finally encountered a family that was able to help him. True story. By show of hands, how many of you would have been a complete goner just like me in that situation? <laughs> Actually, no, put your hand down. That's insensitive, showing off your healthy limb. How could you at a time like this? Just kidding. So the point is that Aaron was in a situation where he had to deal radically with his arm if he was going to escape with his life. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is telling us here. We need to deal radically with our flesh because the wages of sin is death. I can't imagine being in that situation and what I would do, but I can imagine being in a situation that so many find themselves in today, trapped in sin, unwilling to take the radical measures necessary to escape death. May we be like Joseph who, when tempted by Potiphar's life, we flee he got out of there. Or may we take heed to Paul's instructions to Timothy to flee youthful lusts and to pursue righteousness. Jesus is concerned with our eternal destination. When he said, it's better for you to enter into life maimed, he's essentially reiterating what he had already told the disciples right, right after uh, he, he rebuked Peter. In Mark 8, 34 and 35, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So to be saved is to lose your life. To lose the life that the world wants for you, that the devil wants for you, and maybe the life that you thought you wanted for yourself. To be great is to deny yourself and to put yourself last and serving others in Jesus' name. And to follow Jesus is to choose to take up your cross and to follow him in the way of loving sacrifice. And it's not promised to be an easy life, but what's the alternative? Jesus tells us what the alternative is, and it's not a pretty picture. Fire and worms. Hell is a real place. And Jesus speaks about it often. In verse 44, he warns against it and describes it in vivid detail as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Luke, he says it's a place of eternal torment for which there is no return, not even to warn loved ones. In Matthew, he says it's a place where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. In Matthew also, he calls hell a place 
of outer darkness, comparing it to Gehenna, which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where garbage was burned and worms abound. So there's no denying that Jesus knew and believed and taught and warned about the absolute reality of hell and that it is the punishment that awaits those who refuse God's salvation, that it's the eternal exclusion from his presence. Not a fun thing to talk about, but as we do, I pray that for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are believers, may the reality of hell once again inspire us and compel us to be praying for those in our life who do not yet know Jesus. May God strengthen our faith in believing that what he says is true, especially what he says about hell, that it's true, so that we can act accordingly, that we can, out of a concern and, and love for the lost, that we can be resolved to do something about it. James, James 5, 19 and 20 is a great encouragement. It says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. So who in your life might God be calling you to share your faith with? And why haven't you? Those are questions I'm asking myself. The chapter closes with this. Verse 49 says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. Now, in studying this, I realize this is a very difficult passage to interpret. There's a lot of different interpretations of it, but we know that fire purifies and salt preserves seems likely that Jesus is referring to the fiery trials that everyone in this broken world goes through. And for the believer, the trial should purify our faith as we cling to Jesus, our living hope, to carry us through. And as for the salt, believers are called the salt of the earth, right? And as we abide in Christ, as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, our ministry is effective and fruitful, and we remain salty. So it says, stay salty. Have salt in yourself, it says. Don't lose your edge. Don't be lukewarm. Don't approach your faith so casually. Don't just go through the motions. Don't lose your saltiness. Instead, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And finally, be at peace. It says, have peace with one another. Don't, sit, don't take yourself too seriously. Don't stir things up for no reason and cause someone to stumble. Instead, be unified in Christ, be gracious, and be sensitive to others. If the worship team could uh, come on up, we'll close here in just a moment. So we've talked this morning about God's guide for greatness, what it, what it takes to truly be great. And these are according to the Lord's measures, which are so opposite of the world's. To be a servant of all, to deal graciously, and generously with all, to be sensitive to those who are younger in the faith. I hope you've been stirred towards these things this morning as, as I have been. But most of all, I hope that we walk out of here clinging on to the truth that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He is our ultimate example. Jesus serves you. Jesus serves me. It almost feels blasphemous to say. I mean, this is God we're talking about. 
We serve deity. Deity doesn't serve us, but that's exactly what it says. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't have to tell you that we live in a weary and broken world. Some of you are tired. Some of you are going through really difficult times. But whatever you're dealing with today, I pray that this morning that you know in your heart that the all-powerful, almighty God humbled himself, came down as a man in the form of a man to serve you, to give his life as a ransom for many, including you. Jesus serves us. Do you trust Jesus to serve you this morning? Do you trust him to meet your needs? He's sufficient for all of your needs. He has the strength that you need for today. He has peace that surpasses your understanding. He has joy that supersedes your circumstance. Do you believe that this morning? Do you trust him to serve you? Do you trust him to meet your needs? So maybe you've never put your trust in Jesus and you'd like to this morning for the first time, or maybe you've been following Jesus your entire life, but you just need to recommit your heart towards believing and trusting him to serve you and to meet your needs. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We confess our need for you, Lord. Without you, God, none of us would have any hope of freeing the trap of sin and the wages of sin that is death. But because of your great love for us, because you died for us and rose again, we can have life. We can be with you in eternity. So Lord, I pray for anyone here that does not know you, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would put their trust and their hope, their faith in you to save them from their sin. And for those of us, Lord, that have been walking with you for a while, God, we confess that pride still gets the better of us and that we need you, Lord, to humble us. We need you, God, to gently instruct us, maybe harshly rebuke us, that we could be in the place where you can use us, Lord, to be a servant of all, to put others first. God, we wanna be a part of building your kingdom. We wanna be used by you, Lord, and we know that we need to humble ourselves. Would you do that in and through us this morning? In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.